Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast and your week in sports cars, listener Q&A, Muppet flapping their mouths and opining about things mostly driven by the questions you send in, but also occasionally freestyling a little bit and going off on our own little tangents. I am indeed Marshall Pruitt. That is on the other end of the phone, breathing just in a delightfully sexy and mature way, Graham Goodwin. He of... Uh, Weckety Weck, the official name, by the way, the rebranded, formerly known as the FIA World Endurance Championship, now known as Weckety Weck. Graham, a, a person whose face and voice and fingers and toes and just all all aspects of the man are brought forth through communication <laughs> devices where you get to enjoy the Weckety Weck. I happen to play in IMSA. I haven't come up with a catchy dumb name for that. We do indeed do this on a weekly basis. It is brought to us by... Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and TorontoMotorsports.com, all three of whom, Graham, we love deeply. I can tell you one thing up front. We have a whole bunch of questions. Uh, oh, a, yes. yes, we're we're not using American Standard. We're not using metric. We're using another form of measurement, a heck of bunch. That is a official yep. unit of measurement. Yep. We have a heck of bunch of questions. This is being recorded at 11.06 a.m., Friday, March 24th, would say this is being recorded many days later than optimal. Need to apologize to our dear listeners because if my laptop, which was only about two years old, had not uh, decided it was time to leave, uh, leave us shed its uh, electron-based mortar coil about yeah. two or three hours before the end, of the 12 hours of Sebring last Saturday night. Well, there's, my, a, te- there's a technical term for that. It's it shat itself. <sighs> yes. Uh, it, it embraced its inner panos Abruzzi. And uh, <laughs> yes, just, <laughs> just poop the poop. The good old bed uh, did not, sur- did not respect the bumps or survive the bumps in a 12 hours of Sebring. That was, uh, led, I think the, the lap leader for that was the pace car, unfortunately, but nonetheless, laptop failed, subscribe to two cloud-based backup services would also say that having tried to recover from this laptop failure quickly so I could do things like, I don't know, my job, uh, make podcasts and, and other things, uh, found some very serious gaps and limitations in the cloud-based system um so graham and i discussed that at length before we started i won't bore you with all that but just saying deeply sorry that this is not being captured and put up much sooner uh we had intended but didn't quite work out so like many things in endurance racing uh you plan for one thing the strategy goes completely sideways and hey Action Express Racing wins the 12 hours of sebring um so yeah i guess you could say my computer uh, had a very, very, very similar uh, take on the world as Mathieu Jaminet and Philippe Albuquerque um, in the final moments of the 12 hours of Sebring. And, uh, oh boy, there was a big old crash. But we're back up and uh, we're able to make podcasts. So, um, among other things, this week has not been the best ever. Uh, yeah, uh, on a family front, Bit of a, a sad day yesterday, um, bidding farewell and, and burying uh, my wife's mother. And then in about less than an hour and a half, I'm going to go to an eye doctor and possibly have a needle stuck into my right eye. So that's the report here, Graham. Uh, we have a ton of questions assembled by our friend Daniel Summersgill. So many coming out of Weckety Weck's eight-hour jamboree on Friday and then IMSA's 12-hour on Saturday. I don't know if we're going to get to all of it before I have to leave for the doctor. And so if we decide there's enough good stuff left to cover, maybe you and the back on the desk, Stephen Kilby, can put together a part two. Hashtag type faster. So that's all I have to say. I am not speaking for the rest of the episode. It's all on you. Oh, go on. Go on. It's just, just such silky smooth kind of West Coast tones that mm-hmm. um, we know that our listener and it is just him. Okay. Likes. Well, you've got me back. All right. So uh, I'm just going to start reading things. 
Mark Whittlage says, Graham, talking about Toyota, we're kicking off with Weckety Wack. Do you think Toyota is now the Audi of 2012? What I mean by that is, Audi was the class-leading team, making no errors, maximizing every bit of performance and reliability. Are we potentially seeing this with Toyota in the new golden era? And can I also just say, and I'm probably guilty of, of using that phrase, we've had one one race in WEC this year, and we've had two with IMSA. Can't call something that's two months old a golden era yet. Let's wait and see. Possibility of it being golden, yes. Can't call it a golden era if we haven't even completed an era. But anyways, uh, is Toyota the new Audi? Um. <laughs> I'll just say this. I think what everybody knows now, uh, that means you and I, it means the fan base around the world, and boy, did it have one for Super Sebring this year, and most particularly the opposition, now know for certain one thing, which is just how good Toyota are. Um, faultless. The, for me, the uh, the 2023 version of the, the Groot, the hypercar, the GRO10 hypercar, looks another step forward on that journey, uh, looked for a more stable platform through the whole weekend. Uh, they made no errors. Everybody around them did um, make at least one error. And in the case of the Ferraris, more than one error. Uh, it does bode well, I think, for the future that there's definitely areas where you can see the others can uh, can make fewer of those errors simply by not making errors. Um, but definitely, uh, I, I hear what Mike says, Steve Fall says something similar. Um, yeah, you, you can't mess with per- perfection. The, the reality here is we are striving for excellence in top professional motorsport. And I think anybody, you know, bemoaning the fact that Tota um, did what they did would be sort of kind of missing the point. Uh, the, the, there's one thing I would add here, by the way, to this, which is, I know we're going to get to Gibbs race later. I think there is a perfectly reasonable conclusion to be drawn that in terms of spectacle, it's distinctly possible that across the thousand miles of Sebring for WC on the Friday and the 12 hours of Sebring for IMSA on the Saturday, that had those races run, to the other race series rule set, we might have seen two better races. Um, I'll explain the others a bit when we get to that part of it. But for WEC, it was a big gap at the end. It was a big gap because Toto were quickest and Toto made no mistakes. Um, but those gaps would clearly have been smaller had we had um, the the caution process that applies for the Emerson Sports Car Championship. Whether or not that's the kind of race you want to see... I think it's a personal choice. But no doubt, in my mind, it would have given us a closer finish. Would it have been a justifiable finish, bearing in mind the relative performance of the cars and the teams and the drivers? No. No, it wouldn't. Um, Toyota blitzed it. They deserved their win. They got the 1-2 and did so with aplomb. Um, And it was great to see Ferrari finishing on the podium in their debut race with the, I think, very pretty... 499p that is an impressive machine uh on its debut setting pole with antonio Froco and coming home on the overall podium against a number of other teams that at times show glimmers of real pace and at times rather messed it up um but i think we do have the glimmer of real competition coming to the front of that grid sooner rather than later as for changes i know um we've got a question here from nagaraj shinoi do i think that the lmh cars have an inherent performance benefit compared to the mdh based on race pace don't know yet is the honest answer it does seem to me that uh, there's some oddness going on with tire wear on the lmdh cars and i think once we've been to another oddity which is portimao for round two that should become much clearer. The way it works is that you don't even look at a change to the platform BOP. What does that mean? It means LMH or LMDH BOP for two races. Um, If there is the gap that I think we saw in 
best possible performance between the two platforms, then it's possible we may see uh, a change uh, for uh, the LMDH or the LMH platforms or both. But do I think that's a done deal yet? It's really remarkably early to say. Um, it was a good event. I would not say that both or either races were good races. I think there were lessons to be learned by everybody. And apologies for what you can hear in the background, by the way. That is a blistering rainstorm that's just hitting um, us here in the south of England. I thought that evening. was carbon fiber bits and pieces still raining down. Yes, from the, from the, uh, of the end Seabrook. of the 12 hours. But um, I think lots of lessons to be learned uh, by a whole heck of a bunch of competitors in both uh, both the major races we saw over the weekend, MP. Uh, but, yeah, as far as the excellence of Toyota, everybody now knows how good they are. It's what we've been saying for some time. It's what we we aspire to, as I say, in the sports. And, to be blunt, won't hear much criticism of them for doing exactly what they've been doing for the last several years, which is going very quickly, making very few mistakes, and collecting a whole lot of silverware. Let's go to Ferrari. Stephen Gate yep. says, I enjoyed the thousand miles of Sebring immensely. I felt we saw enough action, Graham, and competition to suggest potentially mega season. It's coming in all three classes. Who impressed you the most? Stephen says, using the official hashtag of everything we do in the podcast. Hashtag me personally. It was Ferrari. Pole led the race and a podium on the return to the top class. Were you most impressed by Ferrari or was there another uh, entity in the hypercar class that uh, had you just doing a little happy dance. Uh, I, I'd agree with Stephen. I know Oscar uh, at Koi 501 and Yusuf at uh, Yusuf C51 um, are of the similar mind. Uh, that, that was a very impressive start to a team. Let's not forget there's not been the top class of sports car racing since I was eight years old. That's completely remarkable. Um, that 1963 win of theirs, by the way. (laughs) But, you know, so first time in 50 years, uh, very impressive and more to the point. And uh, there is at least one other team I'm going to mention in a moment. More to the point, several of the things that went wrong are very easy to fix. Very easy to fix indeed. Um, So there was the off for Alessandro Pierguidi. And, you know, we could debate until... The time is up as to whether or not that was a good move or a bad move for Alessandro to make at that point. Uh, But either way, the car is impressive. The team is impressive. They will have had, I'm sure, a debrief post-race with an awful lot of hand-waving going on. uh, Very Italian. Uh, Rightly proud of the the effort in qualifying. Um, And I think they've got good reason. I'm sure they didn't feel this way, but good reason to be proud of the way that race went for a first run against you know the excellence that is the Toyota factory team and I think we will very likely see them rather closer at Portimao where both teams have tested um the other team I'll mention by the way at this point the Ganassi Cadillac squad I thought they showed impressive application and pace throughout in the WC race does give reason to be concerned as to whether or not there is quite the balance over stint long pace yet between the Tota and the Cadillacs, uh, the LNPH platform for the Cadillac at Ipecar, the V-Series.R. That will, I'm sure, be better exposed when we've had more and different circuits under the wheels of those cars. We've got two to come in short order next month with uh, Portimao and then Spa uh, before we get to Le Mans. And, you know, I'm sure sensible decisions will be taken. I know we've got questions coming you, on the rest, but... Yeah, I was just going to say, can you imagine how well the Ganassi Cadillac might have done if they'd chosen a better driver than Richard Westbrook? I mean, it's just, <laughs> how, how... They could have won the race, I think. Could have just shaped... The entire season opener in a very different way if they just aimed a little higher in driver quality. But nonetheless, Harsh. Um, Harsh. look, as I told him, any chance I get to throw him under the bus, oh, I'm taking it. And he does the same. 
So, uh, yes. Fair enough. It's fair enough. He, he, yeah, he does indeed. And uh, he'll point out to us that, you know, we're not as good as our uh, market opposition, who is frankly nobody. Yeah, um, well, and but the, look as well, brave <laughs> by the Ganassi Cadillac team to put a bronze driver in the Cadillac as well. So, again, I mean, just... <laughs> You know, Westy, uh, Westy, we're, we're thinking about you. We're, we're hoping. It's, uh, it's actually, I, I think it's particularly good that uh, Richard is named, of course, after a small yappy dog from Scotland. Completely. Westy. And the, m- more than anything here on the weekend sports cars, and I, and I know uh, I'm speaking for you as well, Graham, we just look forward to Richard. I know he's, what, 54, 55? We're just hoping at some point in time. He finds the thing in life that he's good at. So we're rooting for him <laughs> constantly. We don't know what it is, but we just cannot wait for him to report back at the thing. You know, he, he, he demonstrates he's sufficiently not terrible at. So anyways, uh, big hopes and big goals. Yusuf, by the way, you mentioned you have not submitted question for a little while. So thank you for taking the time to do that. Um, I, I'll mention this. We're going to get into... The others that did not perform as well as hoped at the Weckety Weck race. Truly impressed, Graham, with the Ferraris being as fast as they were. I have to assume some of that expeditious pace at Sebring was due to balance of performance. Because as someone who spent a lot of time trackside, and also filming, as you saw, in slow motion, 180 frame per second type stuff. Uh, all six factory Ferrari 499P drivers, I believe, will be receiving their FAA pilot's licenses in the mail <laughs> after the 1,000 miles of Sebring because those cars spent more time vertical than horizontal just big bouncy castles uh not something where anybody would say yep those things are truly connected uh on the ground and powering over the many many bumps the toyotas were phenomenal to watch uh would even say the cadillac uh was really impressive in terms of its ride control power down you name it the ferraris and they did get better from session to session and were even better in the race. But still, Graham, to look at pole being earned and then considering how much time the freaking car spent just off the ground. Um, ill handling is a very polite way to describe what was witnessed. And I was not the only person mentioning mm-hmm. how these, again, beautiful new red prototypes were just not exactly married and and living in harmony with the track surface at Sebring. All of that being known, to then see one of the cars on pole, um, wow. So I take away from this, what will these Ferraris be able to do when they are handling in a very happy and harmonious manner? Uh, so again, a little curious if BOP was maybe giving a bit of an advantage, uh, whether it be it's, I guess, straight line in particular, but yeah, the pole was a real surprise. If you happen to go trackside and see how the cars actually were handling, but nonetheless, uh, another topic too, and this maybe leads into some of the struggles with Porsche, Peugeot, Glickenhaus and air quote van wall had a Decent number of folks, Graham, you've probably seen it uh, on the social medias of, of folks saying, hey, IMSA, GTP, great job on BOP, weckety weck, oh, terrible, look at that, they're just LMDHs and the hypercars are just like two different categories to which I'm thinking, yeah, so in GTP, it's all the same formula, therefore, no, no disrespect to IMSA, but Balancing four cars of the same exact formula, not as hard as your first crack at taking two completely different ideologies. Some cars have all-wheel drive. Some cars have hybrids. Some don't. Some have a spec. I mean, there is a lot of differences on the uh, Weckety-Weck technical group to try and balance the vehicles. Of course, 
we were not going to have perfection in the first head-to-head event for uh, LMDH and Hypercar. I wasn't as put off by it as I've seen some, and I'm not saying everybody was, was feeling that way, but I didn't see this as some grand revelation of, oh, you missed it. To me, it was like, you were never going to hit it. It wasn't as bad as I thought it might be. So if anything, it was like, oh, well, um, yeah, a decent first try. Did you have similar take? Um, I think, I don't think it was bad. I think it's difficult to actually assess it simply because there were so many errors. There were so many issues out there. If there was a take for me, it was less to do with Ferrari. It was, and certainly we'll come to Peugeot in a moment uh, because their weekend was weird, pretty darn terrible. Yeah. To be honest with you. And I think we can also, um, dispense with at the moment with both Glickenhaus and the van wall. And we'll come to that in a moment as well. The, the concerns I've got are if we get to spa and we've still got a noticeable performance disparity between let's say the Ferrari and let's say for the moment, the Cadillac, because the Ferrari is the LMH car that looks to be getting closer to the total than the others. And the Cadillac is the LMDH car that seems to be getting closer to the Ferrari than the others uh, for reasons to go to it in a moment. If we've still got a performance disparity over a full stint and over a race distance between those two, then I think there's reason to be concerned. But I do think it's way, way too early. Let's not forget. I mean, yes, the, the WC Cadillac crew have had a race, the Rolex 24, uh, to get their head around their new uh, machine and, and the um, the opportunity to to test in Europe has not yet been offered to them. That, that's something that will come. Um, the Porsche team, by contrast, only got their race car, I think I'm right, three weeks before um, Sebring. And that group has only been together, therefore, as a race group for three to four working weeks um it's all very very new things are happening at a remarkably rapid pace so we're not at the stage yet where i'm ready to call problem i don't think it was that bad i I think if you take out the the ferrari self-inflicted gunshot wounds things between those two cars were pretty remarkably close on absolute performance I think the major issue appeared to be for the Cadillac that they maybe lacked a little bit of pace compared to the Tota, but for the most part, it seemed to be tyres. It seemed to be tyres that were causing the problems there. Uh, It seemed that their pace was going off a little bit. The Porsche was better um, in the first part of the stint on new tyres, something we saw as well. Uh, in the IMSA race, but then dropped off more quickly than the Cadillac did. So there's lots, I think, uh, to be done on the learning curve for almost everybody involved in that. And then we come to Peugeot before we get to the two minnows who had a terrible Sebring. Yeah. Peugeot Uh, Sport Club UK is asking, uh, Stephen Gate as well. I'm just looking at who else. Number of folks curious about what happened with Peugeot. They obviously mm-hmm. uh, went firmly on record saying we gearbox problems, and that was yeah. the bane of our existence. Uh, I'm not. I don't just think thinking, that was. I don't think it was just that. I, no, I, no, I, it wasn't. Th- they showed every indication, MP, of turning up to Sebring because they had to. Is the honest answer. Um, the car looked, frankly, absolutely terrible. You were saying, I'm mean, interested in your, um, your impressions from trackside, certainly from what we were seeing from our TV pictures, which were pretty darn good. The thing looked absolutely terrible uh, through turn 17. It looked downright dangerous through turn one. Um, and I, they didn't test before the prologue at uh, Sebring. And I wonder whether that's simply because they knew it wasn't going to work. Well, that this is just mind- a race. No, I was just going to say, keep in mind the car's radical concept yep. by comparison to the others. Oh, completely. And then think of Sebring being okay, the indeed. polar opposite of the proverbial billiard smooth tracks that it's meant to perform on. 
obviously raced on last year, but you think of the name, all the places that the rest of the, the wet calendar will be played out on yeah. where you have consistent track surface, the ability to generate consistent grip. You do not have uh, a large rear wing granted today's uh, GTP slash hypercars no longer have giant rear wings, but nonetheless, that big aerofoil stuck up into the airstream does create drag, but it also creates downforce in a meaningful way to help balance the car, stick the thing at least at the back. Without that in place, relying on significant underbody aerodynamics to do that job with the Peugeot, you just think about a place like Sebring, where you yep. go, okay, so for you to have that consistent balance and grip and confidence-giving feel to the drivers, well, boy, do we have a track surface that takes away yeah, everything you was, need for the car to yeah. perform as designed. So not a surprise. Which is, which is exactly the point. It's exactly my point, which is I think they knew it wasn't going to perform, and I think they spent their resource elsewhere. It's worth saying, by the way, on the gearbox, or the rather the gear change uh, issues, they absolutely knew they had an issue there. And we will see a switch from the electric um, gearbox actuation to hydraulic for um, Portimao. That in itself is slightly worrying that they they won't have had much time to test that uh, before we get to round two. So it looks to me at the moment as if Peugeot is a program with some issues. Um, I hope they can work their way through that because it's clearly a car that absolutely catches the attention. If you ask me, you know, in terms of the cars that tr uh, fans trackside uh, were keen to see, one of them absolutely was the Ferrari, and I think we're expecting that wherever we go. And in particular, my God, Monza's going to be a zoo. Um, but uh, the other one is the Peugeot, particularly at Sebring, where obviously the car has not been stateside. It was people's first opportunity to see this radically different car, and frankly, it massively underperformed. And that's a that's a source of bewilderment, really. Um, talking to some of my press room colleagues, we were getting to the stage where a number of them were beginning to talk in dismissive terms about the Peugeot. I hope that doesn't last into the European season, but boy, oh boy, have we got to see a turnaround in fortune and performance from the 9X8 at Portimao where it has tested and at Spa uh, for that car to be taken seriously when we get to Le Mans in June. Um, it, it was very poor indeed. And by the way, Across the 19 new generation prototypes we saw in action um, over the weekend, uh, take out the two that don't feature hybrid system, the only car that featured a hybrid failure. Um, 94. There we go. So uh, that, that, as far as I'm aware, as long as uh, teams and manufacturers aren't telling us porky pies, um, that was the only one that actually had a hybrid failure. And indeed, that car rejoined the race, albeit three hours later, but it did manage to rejoin the race. Quick word, by the way, for the two minnows. I said I would touch on those. Um, it was a reasonably impressive start for the Bicolis uh, hashtag van wall effort, with the exception of Jacques Villeneuve, who bluntly was not nearly quick enough uh, all weekend, was beginning to find... I'm not going to say speed, less terrible pace towards the end of uh, his stints, but bluntly needs to work on that if he's going to be anything close to being credible in that car. Uh, but that car had two problems, both it would seem caused by the same incident, got rammed from the rear uh, by, was a Peugeot, I think, wasn't it? I think they hit the rear of the, of the van wall. The Glickenhaus, um, engine failure by the look of it for that car, with some hilarious in-car uh, audio from Roland Dumas uh, talking back to the team, and he was clearly frustrated what was going on. Lots being said by Jim Glickenhaus uh, over the weekend about budgets and you know how the class was developing to be almost impossible for a privateer. I'm he afraid got into a whole stock market. I almost feel like he got into crypto maybe as well. Yeah. Uh, 
that was one of the more interesting <laughs> press conferences. I think, I think, I can uh, here's call. the thing: I've got uh, I've got a huge amount of time for Jim. I would go as far as to say, professionally, I regard him as someone I can call a friend. I can talk to him on and off the record with complete trust. He will be completely open with me. Here, though, is it's a conclusion I profoundly disagree with. Uh, the reality is that the team has opted, whether or not this has been forced upon them by circumstance or or whatever else, not to test. Okay, you cannot at this level of motorsport come into a an environment where you've got teams and manufacturers operating to the levels of excellence that we know that they can in motorsport and expect anything other than your ass handed to you um, if in that kind of environment if you don't test. You know, we've already talked about Cadillac and Porsche and Ferrari lacking time, uh, but they've all tested. And the reality is is that the Glickenhaus hasn't, and I'm afraid it showed and showed badly. Um, there's no prisoners taken here, and I hope that the tone that we're hearing from, from Jim pretty much throughout race week after the prologue isn't um, a portent of doom for, you know, the end of that program because they've added something special. I love to see the Minos. I love to see people doing something different. But in this instance, with absolute respect to the commitment that was shown for the past two years by that program, I think you've basically got to take a choice. And that choice is... This is the level at which the competition is. I'm not saying it should become a spending battle, but I'd be a lot more convinced by by that argument from Jim had the car tested at all. And the reality is it didn't. And what was strange, the- Graham, was the lack of bluster. And again, yeah. I, I, I don't say that with any uh, negativity. I'm just accustomed to Jim holding on to that uh, we are David, we Goliath yeah. doesn't know, but we're about to knock his teeth out yeah. kind of rhetoric. And I'll, again, I'm not claiming that this is any grand insight that speaks to whatever might be coming in the future for them. But to your point, just felt a little weird and a little off. How's this for the first time I can remember in just about forever, the Glickenhaus team was, other than fielding a car that was beautifully blue and stood mm-hmm. out on track as something that was beautiful to behold, they were really a non-factor the entire time. And we've seen situations before where whatever programs that reach whatever heights decide to ramp down, budget cutbacks, who knows, whatever it is where you go, there was a point where you were prominent and things are starting to slip a little bit. Normally when that slippage starts to happen, you don't see the same degree of excellence maintained. You look at the drivers involved and you go, hey, that guy's not cheap. Oh, that one. (laughs) There's no discounts on that one. That one is going to charge you, right? So it's just a little bit of an odd thing to your point. And if it was just simply skipping testing, who knows if there was some reason we're unaware of why they didn't test. But just saying, when you see the drivers involved, the quality of the people involved, you see everything that it takes to do this and go, wow, you were there, but you weren't really there. And uh, this is your, you know, your home race. Um, just a weird, weird scenario. It was just, it felt ill-fitting for them yeah it, it, it's a shame because you know i know they like to be the kind of the anti-hero but the reality is there's a lot of people rooting for them and it sort of felt they'd almost given up before they got there it sort of felt like that it's it, and and look i'd like them to come out and kick ass that's what i'd like to see happen at portimao at spa and at le mans i know that jim desperately wants to take the fight particularly to ferrari and everybody would love to see that everybody would love to see that but you know they've got a way to come back from that and yet they're now bidding of course if if and i didn't hear him mention it once but i didn't hear anybody mention it once albeit the regulations say they can't now moaning about bop didn't hear that hardly at all through the weekend but the reality at the moment is you're now not bidding for a change from position of strength 
if you're not going out there and testing. Um, is it a bit of a arms race? Well, there's an element of that in all forms of motorsport. But if you're not even involved in the race, and by that I mean testing, it does make it difficult to take that argument to them, doesn't it? It do. Why don't we jump to a little subheading here assembled by our pal, Daniel Summersgill, once again. You know what? And I need to mention this. I always fail to do this, Graham, mm-hmm. on our weekend sports car show. And I don't know why. If you love yourself some motor racing and you like to enjoy your motor racing with friends and you think to yourself, you know what? I wish I had more friends who loved racing, who want to talk about it each day, who love to talk about life and just high quality people, positive people, funny people who also love racing. And that's the central thing that they do. You might consider joining the listener group that has formed on their own around the podcast. Pruday, P-R-U-E-D-A-Y, PrudayRocks at gmail.com. Send an email to PrudayRocks at gmail.com, and they will gladly welcome you in. They play on Discord. I believe there's also a Twitter group. This is all private. So, uh, again, if you have an interest, you like talking sports cars, IndyCar, F1, whatever, you might consider joining the Pruday and making some new friends and hopefully having some fun there all right graham we have about 14 minutes left why don't we go well, to we better s- talk imsa then haven't we well this kind of gets into some of that there imsa stuff uh this comes yeah. from steph s-e-s-t-e-p-h so could this be stephen curry uh, my favorite uh, nba player i don't know but if so steph thank you for sending this in uh how did the porsche get a podium after all that carnage at the end of the imsa race graham like were they just that far ahead of the LMP2 cars? thought if you crashed out, you didn't get a podium. Like most of the time, that's how it works in most series. What a wild end, though. And we got some other themes here to a pluck on the Porsche Penske Motorsport slash finish of the IMSA race. So, hey, uh, that Porsche. They, they got finished a GTP on the, podium, didn't they? Not yeah. the overall podium. Hey, yeah. we got, we're on the podium. And our car is on the back of a wrecker <laughs> being towed back to the upside uh, down on fire. Yes. How, do, how does that happen? Um, and hey, we I think we got all the parts back despite one freaking moron trying to rip parts of the broken one of the broken Porsche 963s off uh to run away with but that's a that's a separate thing i'm going to offer one counterpoint on that by the way where if we can take a moment there is one other theory is that if you look at that video, it did look as if that car was remarkably close to the fence. And there is just the possibility that the the person that's been attracting lots of ire, including mine, was actually trying to unhook the car from the fence. Yeah, I didn't see that happening. Me neither, but I did hear that from one person who was in the sort of immediate vicinity, but it didn't look that way. Uh, Either way, if it was a moron, you're a moron. Um, if it wasn't a moron, I apologize. Well, how's this? The car and the parts were on the other side of the fence from where this person was. So if you're trying to take the parts that are quote hooked on the fence to free them up, you would be trying to make those parts go towards the car. Oh, I mean, make make no mistake. If the, if this guy did what he's supposed to have done, he needs to be dragged through the streets of Sebring by a wild horse. Um, or indeed by repaired Porsche 963. Trying to rip. Um, this was an attempt to rip uh, carbon fiber part of the hashtag front nose off the car mm-hmm. and make off with it. Let's make no yep. mistake. And if there was a problem with it being stuck, I'm fairly confident the folks who are professionals and who deal with could these have, things could have, could have, have dealt done with that. that. So we can go yeah. ahead and officially say that wasn't what happened. But why don't, we, why don't we open up the door here on... How does a car that arrives at the end of the race in the back of a wrecker uh, still claim a podium? To which we say... The answer is that IMSA regulations don't require the car to cross the line. It's the number of laps completed. So, yes, if you look at the official results, an LMP2 car did finish third overall, but IMSA Mm -hmm. does not do a, quote, overall podium. They do podium per class. Therefore... We had a Porsche 963 that did not finish the race, 
earn a podium. You and I happen to be standing at the main entryway to the podium uh, after the race, and we mm-hmm. saw some very surprised uh, Porsche drivers and personnel walking over like, really? <laughs> We're, you want us here? Okay. Um, yeah, quite. it's got to be said a quite shocked-looking Matthew Diamine as yes. well. Um, he did look as if he'd been through the wars, and indeed he had. Um, horrible incident. Um, what, do you want to start on this one? Yeah, well, we got two here. Alexander Smith in third gear. Two items. Should we take our pitchforks to Philippe Albuquerque's house or to Jaminet's house? Philippe Albuquerque, the driver of the Wayne Taylor Racing with Andretti Autosport. Number 10, Acura ARX 06. Mm-hmm. And Mathieu Jaminet in the number six or seven whatever it was uh porsche penske motorsport 963 the two main protagonists in the big old crashity crash that was not great uh third gear says is it philippe's fault i think so three gt cars battling for position ahead he swung across the entire track to try and make it four wide car was fast and there was still time left um why don't we start with a pitchfork portion first from alexander and then close off with third gear uh Um, fault are we assigning fault does fault belong here graham and if so who owns it uh uh, it was a bit of six one and a half does the other Uh, my, my overarching view here is i think some questionable driving standards have been let go for too long in imsa uh i think the i i appreciate the drive to keep races running and to provide the entertainment. But there's a little bit too much urgency missed in that, by the way, was um, the fact there was, there was further contact beyond that between the two GTP cars with contact with GTP car on GT that caused a little more of the carnage in that same corner. (laughs) Cautions breed cautions really did come into sharp focus, didn't it, in in this race? And for me, ruined at the end what could have been and was an awesome race in the middle. I I did something I've not done in 21 years. I watched trackside. Took a shower. Yes, indeed. Uh, um, I watched trackside for a couple of hours, actually, during the, the 12 hours. And the chasing group of GTPs, was an absolute joy to behold, pushing hard into and through traffic, um, you know, stretching a gap, losing that gap. You know, it was five cars of the eight for quite some time uh, in, you know, a variety of combinations, two cars, three cars, four, and five at times. And that was sort of lost at the end with this kind of frenetic finish. I've said before on, on Twisk that the... IMSA rule set really suits these longer distance races, but boy, did we have a lot of cautions there. It was back to back. And, you know, uh, I, I don't even know how many caution periods we had because there were caution periods that went directly back to caution within a lap. So you didn't get a green flag lap, um, you know, being called before, um, before we went back into caution again. We even had a crash like, during a caution, Graham. I mean, oh, well, ah. we'll get to that now. <laughs> Get to that one in a moment. So, I don't know. I mean, in Weckity Weck world, there'd be a meeting behind closed doors with some of the senior drivers and race officials to talk about the issues here. Uh, But, you know, an incident that takes out three of the leading runners and a bunch of GTDs as well, it just shouldn't be happening. It shouldn't be happening like that. Certainly not into somewhere like Turn 3, which is sketchy at the best of times uh, and certainly sketchier still in the dark and sketchier still more when you're coming back out of a caution period and I'm not going to point the finger at either Jaminet or Albuquerque. Jaminet was trying to get through traffic, Albuquerque was trying to get past Jaminet, that's what they're paid to do um, but it was it was messy is what it comes down to and I'd rather take two steps back away from it and think about whether or not actually there's there's lessons to be learned here about the way in which these races are controlled moving forward. Mercifully, it was only just shattered carbon fibre, um, but that could have been a hell of a lot worse. Uh, it wasn't 
comfortable to watch that we had some awesome racing but too little of it in that race and i'm of the opinion that i think with the the option to sit and discuss that between the professionals involved the teams the drivers and race control that perhaps there's a better way of going about these things than than the choice that was made there and i'm sure given the opportunity to tell me face to face uh, Felipe and Mathieu would give me the benefit of their opinion, and I want to hear it. But it was it was messy. It was actually tough to watch the end of that race, and it was tough to watch principally because we just kept going back into caution and through caution and out of caution, and it ruined what could have been an absolutely epic finish to that race. That wasn't an epic finish to that race, um, and that's what we were robbed of by a combination of circumstances. I don't think very many people came out of that with a great deal of credit, to be honest with you. No. A uh, couple things here. I'll share my opinion about this, and I'll do that because I then received two counter pieces of opinion, or two counter opinions, so I don't know. Uh, maybe some of it will be interesting. Maybe it won't. Uh, this is exactly what Philippe Albuquerque is paid to do. Uh, saw an opportunity to set a pick, basically. There was a pick being set, I should say, by the GT cars. Matthew Jaminet trying to do as drivers do during Sebring a zillion times, figure out how to get around fast or slower cars and lose the least amount of time in doing so. By chance, he picked a lane that never opened up, tried to go to the outside, coming around turn one, that little kink that is turn two, then the hard breaking into turn three where they make the left. So on approach to turn two, he went right. That proved to be the wrong decision. That opened up space for Albuquerque, who had not been slowed, to try and charge through on the left. Mm -hmm. I can't find nor would I ever find, Graham, a professional race car driver who would Absolutely say agree. if they yep. were in that same number 10 Acura, they would not go to the left to try and make that pass. There's One no other percent. credible approach to this. There was still time left in the race. Utterly meaningless. Doesn't matter. There's nobody that says, ah, I could pass, but I'm not. There's no guarantee you're going to get by another time if the opportunity is presented you take it that is what professional race car drivers do uh same in any other sport hey yes i'm running down the field playing soccer slash football and yes i see the potential to kick the ball and score but yeah you know i'll wait there's still time left in the match no professional athlete ever says i'm gonna pass up on winning so let's just get rid of that concept altogether what philippe totally albuquerque agree. did is exactly what he's paid to do and what every professional race car driver will do would do if we ran the race again tomorrow in the same exact scenario played out in front of us he and every other driver do the same thing so that's just a fact no blame to be placed on philippe albuquerque in attempting to get by jam and a take the lead win the race then we have the next phase, which is where things start to get a little spicy, Graham. And that is the contact. How far along was the Acura on the side, the left side of the Porsche? I don't know the exact amount. Was the nose, the tip of the Acura's nose, was it one foot, two feet, a meter, whatever, uh, up to the side of the Porsche? I don't know, but it was up a little bit. You can forget any of the rules and other forms of racing that says, well, if you're to the B pillar or the C pillar, you're the corner is your, none of that nonsense applies here. He had momentum, swung to the left, started to try and pass Jaminet and the Porsche. There was some overlap between their cars because Albuquerque was moving forward again, a couple feet. What happened next? That is the source of texts I have received and also some very passionate explanation from professional drivers about what happened there. I received one text from a Le Mans winning sports car driver, uh, champion 
driver many times over who said, I, and I'm paraphrasing, I don't want to be saying this or thinking this, but I wonder if Jaminet, I'm sorry, I wonder if Albuquerque hit the throttle while he was on the grass. Now, I have no proof of that. I'm not saying there's anything to that. I don't know. But I can tell you that in the contact that happened with Jaminet moving over to the left, contact taking place between the Porsche and Acura, the rate of speed they were traveling, the Acura then getting knocked and bounced over onto the grass slash dirt, making a glancing blow with the uh, with the, the barrier there, but kept on that trajectory pointed towards turn three. I know that I had one very, very credentialed driver ask and or not ask, but basically say, I think Jaminet kept his foot in it. And I'm sorry, I keep saying Jaminet. Albuquerque kept his foot in it and did his best to basically accelerate and try and take out Jaminet by the time they got to turn three. I can't tell you how Philippe Albuquerque would manage space and time to know that if he did that, they would indeed end up in the same place at the same time and he'd be able to take out that Porsche. But I can at least tell you someone who I say is not an idiot not someone who's prone to conspiracy theories, was wondering if the secondary contact that caused this big, huge crash that took out the sister portion, GT cars, and this giant mess that turned the race on its head, there was at least one driver who I highly respect who thought after getting knocked into the weeds, Albuquerque might have done something nefarious to then cause contact. So this is where the should we take our pitchforks to Albuquerque and is this Philippe's fault and some other things? Maybe some of that's being generated from. Didn't mention I thought Jaminet not at fault at all, right? Got jammed up, stuck behind the GT cars, found a brief opening, and the minute that he saw a way to unstick himself, turned the steering wheel to the left to try and get past those GT cars, ended up hitting Albuquerque, this whole thing got triggered. We know what happened from there. But as I saw it, this was Jaminet waiting, being frustrated, obviously, having made the wrong choice to go to the outside instead of go to the inside. And the minute he had a chance, Graham, turned the steering wheel to try and rectify the problem, unaware that Albuquerque was a couple feet alongside him, contact, crash, out of the race. I had more than one pro driver in the race afterwards tell me, nah, man, you're being an idiot. Uh, Jaminet, whether it was the video camera that looks at the back of the car that acts as a review mirror or looking in his left mirror, something, saw headlights, had to see headlights peek out on the left, and he turned left to try and cover and block. So, no. Pruitt, you're wrong. It wasn't him just seeing the seas parting in front of him, turning left, and oops, it was a mistake. This was him trying to cover off that lane, block Albuquerque, saw those headlights, indicated to him someone was going to try and take the lead from him, and so he was moving over to cover. Mm -hmm. Whether that was him knowing that Acura was already a little bit way alongside him or not, Hard to say that part, but I had it told back to me many times that, no, this was intentional to try and block. I can't tell you if any of these things are correct. Did Albuquerque gas it up trying to spear the person that chucked him off the track? I don't know, man. That that sounds that sounds a little iffy to me. Uh, you, would ha- <laughs> you would have to have amazing precision in believing that you would end up by gassing the adding acceleration to your car that you would hit that car, hit Jaminet in exactly the right spot to take him out, retribution paid. That seems a little low percentage reality. Jaminet yeah. intentionally trying to block and cover off? I don't know. Again, I can't say uh, because I don't know. But I can tell you that I've had folks tell me that, boy, this was not as simple as how you're portraying it. Guy got uh, slowed up behind GT cars. Other guy got a run. 
dude got a chance to break free from that and oops we had a little bit of oops but there was no ill intent on either side leave it up to i guess the racing gods to decide which version is accurate but uh i've heard all kinds of things um we've run up against time if you're going to go and get uh, someone to put a needle in your eye yes so i'm going to just run through a couple of other quick uh points before we wrap uh first one is driving standards in particular driving standards lmp3 um i think we all know what we're talking about here uh there was at least one driver that seemed to spread cars wherever he went i believe that driver whether officially noted or otherwise was parked don't get us killed uh, (laughs) before the end of the race i do however think this points to a wider issue Uh, Whatever the future for LMP3 is this season and beyond, I think we're at a stage now with um, where things stand that it would be a smart move for IMSA to introduce some kind of driving standards process for anybody coming into the WeatherTech Championship um, as a first-timer. Uh, to pass some form of bronze test in an early practice session, you know, 10 laps at a reasonable pace, error-free to be allowed to start that race because there was clearly at least one driver in on the start grid for that race that frankly had no part being there. Um, That needs to be treated seriously. It's something we do see um, in other areas of racing. They they do it at Le Mans. They do it at uh, the Nürburgring. And with the closing speeds we've got in sports car racing, in mixed class sports car racing, particularly when we're talking about racing into the dark, and uh, it doesn't even have that excuse, I'm afraid, on this occasion, that's something I think they should be treating seriously across motorsport. It's not an issue we've generally seen in Europe, it's got to be said. And again, with the benefits of the uh, conversations that can be had and are had on a number of real books, uh, basis i think this is another one where maybe that might be well worth the conversation to see whether or not those kind of incidents can be avoided running in a straight line into the back of a car behind the safety car um is simply not acceptable it's as simple as that and um, bear in mind the same driver had been responsible for bringing out that safety car and prove earlier in the race had spun and almost taken out the car that eventually run the race um there are rather too many reasons to mention uh, that that guy um, in the in the race coverage. That's that one. The other major point of questioning before we wrap up, MP, is about the future of Super Sebring. I think we can say, uh, with without too much fear of um, of uh, being incorrect here, that was for the time being at least the final Super Sebring uh, for reasons we've gone into before on the weekend sports cars. And the one correction I'll give to my prior expressed opinion is thanks to some input from some people that should know, I think it looks now unlikely that WC will be returning to Sebring in 2024. Rocky's Um, not happy, by the way. I don't know if you just heard him, but he waited. I didn't hear them, but it must be feeding time. Um, So uh, I'm hearing all sorts of options being looked at, but uh, if I had to hazard a guess... Looks to me like we might be going back to a circuit we've seen before. In America? Uh, for the W. Uh, yeah. Um, I think that might well be the favoured option at this point. Of so many Americans, maybe? Breath. It could be more than one America. Wow. Yeah. Um, so let's, let's hashtag wait and see if that one actually comes to fruition, if that's what is actually going to happen, and whether or not that is a one and done again. Um, or whether or not there is a longer plan for North America. Though I don't know the answer to either of those two questions, to be honest with you. And I've heard from people that should know more than one possibility uh, being discussed even quite late in the day. Um, so that's for that one. We will see whether or not there's an opportunity for um, the young Jedi, uh, Mr. Kilby, to join me for a top-up version of the week in sports yeah. cars. but. But right now, MP, unless you've got something else you want to finish with, I think it's time to wrap and time to get you off to the eye doctor. Yeah, I need to go do that because seeing is, is I'm told, it's a good helpful thing. for a professional photographer and videographer. It, so, uh, or it, well, indeed. Pro. Let's say goodnight then. Let's say thanks, Daniel Summers-Gill, for putting together the questions this week. And thanks, of course, to everybody that uh, 
added to the teetering pile of questions we received uh, here. Thanks to Cooper Tyres, uh, to Motorsports.com, and uh, thanks to my right-handed mug from Fast Motorsports. I know you've got a left-handed one. Yeah, you got the um, nice print. And absolutely, and to the Justice Brothers for their continued support for the Marshall Pruitt podcast, of which the Weekend Sports Cars is, of course, part. Uh, I've been Graham Goodwin. He's been Marshall Pruitt. Rocky's been Rocky in the background. Uh, this has been the Weekend Sports Cars, and we will talk to you either later this week or maybe next. I hope next. It's called the Weekend Sports Cars.